Okay, welcome back to another Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 59, and uh, today I'm bringing you another special guest, this time all the way from, uh, well, it's a long way away in what I believe is Qatar, and it's uh, Dr. Marco Cardinali. Hi, Marco. Hi, thanks for the very nice invitation to participate in your podcast. Oh, no, I'm, I'm very pleased to have you. Did I get your name right? Did, did I pronounce Marco Cardinale right? Is that right? Yeah, it was perfect. Perfect, perfect Italian uh, pronunciation. I'm happy. <laughs> Good. Well, because uh, I'm half French, so my, uh, my, uh, my name usually gets butchered by people. So I try, and, I try and go out of my way to get people's right. At least European names. I can get the European names right. So... Marco, um, if you want to give uh, the listeners a bit of background as to who you are um, and what it is that you do, and then, and then I'll take it from there. Okay, um, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Let's say uh, I'm currently the head of sports physiology at Aspire Academy in uh, Doha in uh, Qatar. Before moving to Qatar, I was the head of sports science and research for the British Olympic Association. So with Team GB, I was the head of science at the Beijing Games, the Vancouver Games, and the London 2012 Games. Before that, I had a little stint in academia in uh, Aberdeen University in the School of Medical Sciences. And uh, before arriving in the UK, I had various roles in sports science with different national governing bodies, with the Olympic Committee. Uh, but I started as a coach, so I'm a qualified coach in different disciplines, but mostly in athletics and handball. Uh, I was a handball player, so my passion really comes from uh, coaching. So from pe- some people say that I'm uh, a coach that wears a lab coat, and some others say I'm a scientist that wears a tracksuit. Uh, so e- either way, I'm not probably either a good scientist or a good coach. I'm something in the middle. So y- you can make what you want of it. Well, Marco, as, a, as an Italian, I'm sure that uh, your tracksuit is very fashionable. <laughs> Some of those Team GB, uh, those outfits aren't always the, uh, the epitome of fashion, but uh, I'm sure you managed to give it that Italian edge. <laughs> so um, the reason why I wanted to talk to you was um, throughout this podcast, I've had a lot of experts of various types. Um, we, we get a lot into mechanistic stuff, so we discuss mechanisms behind various uh, physiological issues, nutrition being one angle that I'm particularly into because that's my field. Um, But whether it's sports science or whether you want to call it strength and conditioning, uh, whether you want to call it nutrition, we use this word science. Um, But as you have just pointed out, you know, you're you're a practitioner primarily uh, with a coaching background. When we when we talk about all this mechanistic stuff, when we talk about this applied stuff, we are, of course, directing this at the applied end, the outcome end, which at the levels that you've been responsible for is, of course, you know, winning medals. Um, and that's kind of what I want to get into initially was this, this, this idea of how important science is, but also how we can get a little too lost into the science. And um, we were just having a little conversation offline about the, the new F word, you know, this whole functional thing. Um, which maybe we'll get into. But, you know, to to coin a really important uh, scientific term that I suspect is not in the Queen's English vocabulary, but there's a lot of bollocks out there, isn't there? (laughs) (laughs) 
I like I like the fact that you had to say the B word, so <laughs> you have to replicate it. No, it's uh, you are right. Is uh, there is a lot of that stuff out because it's commercially viable. Uh, it's it's a lot easier to put out a product without validation and make incredible claims and make money rather than go through the routes of validating, checking safety, making sure it works and, and all that kind of stuff. So of course it's an easier route and that's of course is the route that, that people take. Uh, but when you work in elite sport or in, in the Olympic uh, environment, you get floated with all sorts of gimmicks, you know, from uh, equipment to supplements to nutritional uh, guidelines or, or, or approaches to training or competition equipment. And uh, in my previous role at Team GP, we were floated by that kind of stuff pretty much on a monthly basis and it tended to be very intense three to four months before the games because everyone wanted to be associated with success or, or they thought they had the solution for uh, our athletes to, to win medals. And, you know, I was the filter and I have to say that 99.99% of the times it's things that are completely useless or are things that are very well known and already used by athletes and coaches um, or things that we've already, we had already gone through and they didn't work. So it's, uh, you know, being a sports scientist with these organizations is very uh, complex these days because you get floated with all that kind of stuff. The athletes get approached. The coaches get approached, and that creates confusion because sometimes it's through their sponsors, through their agents. Uh, you know, sometimes we read things about football players going to uh, try these treatments or supplement or, or equipment, and it's most of the times promoted by their agents or their friends, and and they think it works. And then you, as a scientist, you have to you have to make sure that actually it doesn't do any harm or doesn't create any problems. So you get into conflict because they tend to believe more to what their mate or their agent has got to say rather than the, the evidence behind it. So it's challenging. And then there is the politics. Uh, so there are the the people with uh, that know the powers to be that push for a product or, or, or uh, something that they might think might help the athletes and then they get audience just because they have the right connections rather than the right knowledge. But I have to say I was very fortunate in my role at Team GB that I had uh, great leadership from Clive Woodward, which was, uh, uh, Sir Clive was very open-minded, but also, you know, he, he trusted me 100% in every decision I took. Uh, so we never ran into issues uh, with, you know, somebody trying to push at all costs a product that was not going to be successful for our athletes. So we, we managed to deal with it in an effective way, I think. Yes, and I, you know, I think depending... I think it's pretty much at any level, whether you're talking to a personal trainer who's just working with just regular people who, who, who aren't professional um, athletes or Olympic athletes, they're not concerned with testing for banned substances or that sort of thing, or, you know, for supplements, for example, or, you know, there, there's some new crazy training methodology that's being promoted out there on, on social media or whatever, all the way up to you know, literally within uh, the realms that you work in, you know, the, the sort of the ultimate elite um, with, with Olympics, uh, for example, um, which is the area that I'm currently working in. And it is amazing just how far and wide this stuff goes. Now, 
we could spend a lot of time talking about, about that. But th there is also this, this other thing, which is science and sport. And I know through my various interactions in professional rugby, but also um, with various Olympic athletes that I've been working with, is we can also overdo the science bit. And we sometimes forget, you know, you used uh, the word confusion before. We forget how dangerous that confusion can be. And there is an enormous amount of focus and concentration that's required in some of these athletes. And we have to think incredibly carefully about our interventions and the timing of those interventions and the impact of those interventions, which frankly might not be that important and could be more destructive. Um, I mean, because you've, you've sort of sat at the admiral's position of this sort of scenario, I mean, how, how have you felt that, that that sort of, you know, the science, not necessarily thrusting science into a new scenario or late into a training phase um, should be handled? Uh, our, our approach, and it's, it's my approach all the time, is you don't introduce surprises uh, at the last minute uh, in preparation for a big event. So, for example, when we were preparing the performance center structure for the London 2012 Games, it was a long educational process with the practitioners involved, uh, which then informed the athletes involved. And what we always said was, you don't introduce anything at the Games. So any process, procedure, equipment, supplement, uh, activity uh, should have been done before and should be part of the normal routines. You don't introduce things last minute. For example, you know, you, you don't put your athletes into ice baths if you don't know, if you never used them before during the Olympic tournament. And, you know, th there's no point. You don't know how they react. You don't know if it works. Uh, you don't give them a supplement just because it's the Olympic Games. You, you should know if it works, if it doesn't work, and if it's appropriate. So uh, the approach has always been that. You are right with the fact that there is a, a tendency to over-science things, uh, but I think it comes, and you know, I'll, I'll criticize academic institutions here. I, I think academic institutions uh, worldwide, but in the UK in particular, do not prepare uh, people for working in sport. Uh, they give them a very good uh, background in science, but they, you know, most of these graduates don't have a clue of what the sporting world looks like. So they are keen to introduce things or, or to do activities that are mostly linked to their experiences in labs rather than what needs to be done. And also they are not aware of the timings, the issues with the personalities, the coaches, the athletes, etc. So uh, I'm against over-sciencing. I always say that everything we do has a cost and a benefit and we should always understand if, if the benefits outweigh the costs and also we should always look at what interventions we can do and not be limited by what we know. There might be things that we don't know that are better, faster, more beneficial and possibly uh, more efficient. So I always question. Everybody that works with me knows that they will be questioned <laughs> about things all the time. And I like to be questioned because it makes me thinking. So that's the kind of approach I've always used. Yes, yeah, so I, I, you know, you, you've mentioned, I've, I've read something that you've written before and you talk about this issue of marginal gains. Uh, and that's something that we don't always think about. You know, it is, is there are marginal gains involved in this. And 
like I said just now, you know, us throwing in some whole new radical training program or some whole new new diet, um, the way that that rocks the boat, because that's going to change their whole life, uh, everything they're used to, their routines uh, on so many levels. And of course, psychology is rapidly gaining so much more respect by some people and the impact that that could have is issue. Do you want to just maybe talk to us a bit about this issue of marginal gains? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a great concept and, you know, we, we, we were living and dying by it when, when, I, was, <laughs> when I was at MGB. But uh, the problem is that because it's now got to mainstream media, has become a, a popular term and everyone is, uh, is trying to pursue those marginal gains, forgetting the most important thing. The marginal gains are marginal, which means you have to have everything else in place before you think about marginal gains. Mm. But now you see uh, sometimes things that get implemented uh, without the basics. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, uh, giving supplements to athletes without having analyzed and sorted out their diet, is that's not a marginal gain. That to me is looking for the easy thing to do rather than fixing the issue. Or everyone these days is talking about sleep. So everyone measures sleep, great, nobody sleeps well, fantastic, but what are you doing to make sure that the sleep quality can be better? You know, questionnaires, actigraphy, fantastic, but it's very basic. Do they have a good mattress? Do they have a good uh, pillow? Do they have a dark room? Is the room too cold or, uh, or, or too hot? These are the basics. So until you fix them, do they go out drinking and partying? because they're not going to have a great sleep if they do that. So uh, many times uh, this fails because people pursue things that, are, that, that their athletes are not ready for. You know, everybody know, nowadays does recovery, Im implements recovery strategies, and, and nobody asks recovery from what? Is it really necessary? Or are you doing it before everyone does uh, ice baths and then you have to do it? So uh, marginal gains is a great concept for athletes and groups that are really at the cutting edge, that have exhausted all the basics and they do the basics incredibly well and they look for that extra edge that is going to make a difference. Uh, and, and that's the kind of approach we, we always had and, and I still have. Uh, I now work with young athletes and uh, this has been the battle since day one. Again, there was when I arrived here, um, there was a tendency of in, you know, looking for all these extra things when, to me, when I'm dealing with a 12 to 18 years old boy, if they don't turn up to training every day and if they don't do all the work they need to do and all the basics right, anything else is superfluous. So uh, I see this in uh, youth academies in football uh, in the UK or around the world. You know, you have players that don't do a lot of strength training or don't do all the basic things that they need to do but then they they have compression socks and they have uh, ice baths and then they have uh, you know um, yoga and, and all, the, all these kind of things when you know the basic fundamental stuff are not there so I think fundamentals first marginal things after yeah no I'm, I'm very much behind you on that and uh, we, we've discussed some of these concepts before but mastering the basics because for those of us that have worked, for example, with, um, say, recreational triathletes. Um, you see this all the time, particularly here where I am in central London. You know, there's, there's a lot of these people, they've got a bit of disposable income, so uh, they're putting all their time into buying new bikes. Uh, 
They'll spend a few thousand pounds on an upgrade to a bike so that it weighs five grams less, but they're still carrying five or six kilos of body fat. <laughs> so uh, those marginal gains are nothing compared to the body composition issues. And of course, the lifestyle habits that led to that gain in body fat. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, and I've said this before, one of the problems, though, is, is the people that are dealing with this... Um, you know, they, they, they like to deal with the sexy stuff. And the sexy stuff is, is the rocket science aimed at the marginal gains. It's, it's like, I want you to eat X amount of vegetables a day. It's just not sexy. <laughs> um, so, um, so, so one of the reasons, um, again, I wanted to talk to you was um, we've, you know, when, we, when we're looking at science and how it's being used more and more and more to influence our practice, to inform our practice. Um, it's worth noting that the reason why this is important, of course, is because the difference between, say, a gold and silver uh, medal or a, or a, or a medal and, a, and someone who doesn't even place is a lot different than it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and also the amount of science that we had 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, is, is, you know, there's a lot less of it back then. So we're at this point now where, um, you know, it's much harder to win a medal, isn't, isn't that right? Yeah, it's a, it, there's a combination of factors there. Where first of all, um, there is a lot more countries that invest in sport and have the infrastructure for people to do sport. So uh, at the last games, if I get the numbers right, um, out of... 250 NOCs, uh, there was about 86 that were able to win a medal of any color uh, in London. And this number has been growing. Uh, Beijing and London were very similar, 85 and 86. Uh, but, you know, some highlights of those medals. Uh, Iran won uh, a number of medals in, in uh, very difficult sports uh, to win medals in, you know, a silver medal in a discus throwing event. Uh, Montenegro won their first medal at the Games with a silver medal in women's handball. Cyprus won a medal at the Games. So uh, medals can happen anywhere if you find the right environment in terms of athletes, coaches. And just look at the Serbian uh, success in the last uh, few weeks. So Serbia has won the under-20 uh, World Cup in football. They won the Basketball EuroLeague and the Water Polo World League. And Serbia is a relatively small country with very limited financial resources, not terribly well known for the quality of sports science and medicine either, but they win an under-20 football World Cup, a European basketball with the women's and, uh, and the water polo, they dominate. So they must be doing something right, which is probably called coaching, and it's probably called uh, athletes that are committed, willing to learn, and, and uh, putting the hours in to do what they need to do. So I, I think sometimes science sways perceptions. Um, when I joined BOA in 2005, uh, the, the British applied sports science movement was kind of growing and there was a lot of looking at externally. So everyone was looking at the Australian model, uh, the Australian Institute of Sport because of the success in uh, Sydney. Uh, then after London, Beijing, everyone has been looking at the British uh, success, so it, tend, it tends to go a bit with, uh, with fashion and, and, and success in a way. For sure, science has advanced a lot. Uh, there are many things that 
we can do now that we couldn't do uh, years ago. Uh, but in terms of the applications, athletes still do pretty much what they did about 50 years ago. Um, they train, they, they do uh, conditioning activities. Uh, what has changed a lot is the materials. You know, they wear different things, they have better equipment, uh, but in terms of the quality of training has changed but has not had the seas change. I, I see, um, I like to watch very old video clips of training and I found this video clip from 1936 of the Swedish football team and, and you can't say the difference between <laughs> what they did in 1936 and, and now apart from the fact that they weren't wearing Nike. Uh, in 1936, so um, it, it is fascinating. Uh, things will get even more difficult because more and more countries are funding sport, so athletes can be full-time in different parts of the world. Coaches are moving around the world. Sports science facilities are built around the world. I mean, we have a fantastic facility here in Doha, so uh, maybe in a few years' time there will be some more success from Doha, apart from the uh, the first product that was Mutaz Barshim, you know, they, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, so uh, you had mentioned earlier um, about this idea that we're maybe training up people in sports science, uh, physiology, uh, I would bring in sports nutrition and that sort of thing, strength and conditioning, where we're teaching them some excellent science, but we're not necessarily teaching them excellent applied skills or or how to be an actual practitioner, which of course is a huge, there's a huge gap there, uh, potentially. Could you maybe describe what you mean by that a bit more, please? Yeah, it's, uh, I'll give a bit of background and context in mm. this, uh, so I don't upset my, my British colleagues. Uh, uh, first of all, I, I've, I have degrees from three different countries. I did my BSc in Italy, uh, where the focus is a mix of it's called motor sciences there. Uh, the focus is a mix of PE, coaching, and, and sports science. Then I did my master in the US in sports coaching with a, with a thesis on uh, neuromuscular fatigue. Uh, and there was some emphasis also on sports marketing. And then I did my PhD in Hungary, where it's an, again, it's a mixed bag between uh, applied sports science and more medical sciences. And, and I am a member of staff in British University. So, the first fundamental problem is uh, graduates that go through uh, bachelors and masters and PhDs in UK uh, overall are very well trained in science. So the quality of the science they receive, I think, it's is excellent uh, as compared to many other countries, and especially if they are in the right institution with the right uh, advisors. Uh, or, or, or the PhD supervisors, they get excellent training. I mean, there are some excellences in the UK that everyone is looking at from around the world. So the UK is very fortunate in that. Mm. Uh, however, uh, the problem is that the skills they learn are, are very technical. Uh, and many times, people that are very introvert or, or incredibly uh, gifted uh, from a, an academic standpoint, they tend to obtain these PhDs or, or masters and sometimes they are not the best people to work with athletes and coaches you know the sporting world is very peculiar you have people that uh, uh, are 
borderline egomaniacs. Uh, it's fair, yeah. It's a case. I mean, you yeah. got to be. You cannot perform. Uh, you know, wearing next to nothing in a in a stadium in front of eighty thousand people and in front of a million people if you don't have a big ego. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Uh, and it's the same with coaches. You have coaches that were former athletes. They won n numerous medals at the games or you know, on the world stage. So these people uh, have big egos, and you you have to work with them. And you have to understand who you are. Your role is to support and be behind. So uh, the reality is also that that how many people do really end up working in sport, in elite sport, is a handful. So uh, when, when I was at the BOA, uh, one of the things that we were trying to do was to offer PhD studentships. Uh, we had a very limited number uh, available because of the funding we had. But our practitioners were embedded uh, in, a, in a sporting project. Uh, so they were co-supervised by me and an academic supervisor and they were actually working with athletes and most of them are still in the system which means we, we were probably doing something right. Uh, the other issue is that uh, many universities, because it's, um, it's a bit of a marketing thing, you know, universities are desperate to get students in and advertise their programs. There are far too many programs uh, in, in the UK, some of them of very dubious quality uh, that are advertised, especially postgraduates, master degrees and, or undergraduate degrees. So these students go in these programs and they are eluded that they are going to get a job in, in sport or high performance sport. And, and the other issue with that is that they are mentored or they are taught by people that have never worked in sport. So, you know, they are probably brilliant scientists, I'm sure that most of them are, or they are fantastic teachers. But the reality is, if you've never been there, you don't know, you don't know what it means. So, um, if, if somebody really wants to work in sport, I always say they should start from studying coaching first, because uh, even if you are delivering a technical element, you will end up dealing with coaches. So, if you understand where they are coming from, it helps you. And uh, the specialist needs to be good enough to be transferable to, to what needs to happen. And the key skills that everyone needs to work in sport are you need to be personable, you need to realize that you're not the most important person, actually you're the least important <laughs> in, in the team. Uh, you need to realize that your technical input ain't going to win or lose medals. It's just trying to increase the chances of getting things better. And you need uh, highly technical skills, analytical abilities, ability to analyze and present data, but also ability to decide things very quickly and under pressure. And, and these are all things that you cannot learn really in a, in a university course. Uh, and the last thing is adaptability. Um, during the Olympic Games in London, I did a variety of jobs, ranging from fixing dishwashers to driving... Uh, uh, cleaning uh, ice baths, uh, driving cars, you know, if you think that uh, it's going to be a glamorous job, you're definitely in the wrong industry, <laughs> so there's a lot to think about for young, uh, for young people. What universities I think should pursue is uh, uh, potentially collaborations with sporting entities, uh, but it's a field that needs to grow because uh, universities want, quite rightly, things to get published whether if you are into the business of marginal gains, the last thing you want is to you tell the world about what you found. So there is this big, uh, big difference. Uh, what we did was we obtained 
for most of the things that we, we were doing with our students, we always tried to publish things in the Olympic cycle after they were implemented. So some of the work that was done uh, before Vancouver by uh, Dr. Catherine Hesford uh, has now been published in the last couple of years. So this, this is the kind of approach we use. Yes, it's funny you should say that because one of the roles that I have is um, I'm the nutritionist to the GV fencing team and uh, I'm collecting some data on some very interesting stuff but I'm not allowed to, to even get into that until after the Olympics uh, and that's when my paper's going to get published which is a long time away and that's, that's before I even send it in for review and you know how long that bloody process takes. So anyway... So um, you, you, you mentioned something that I'm really interested in, which is the importance of integration. Uh, albeit, you know, you go through all that education, you, you get your master's, your PhD or whatever, and then basically you're going to be fixing the coffee filter. <laughs> but it is a reality and, and you have to learn to muck in and do all kinds of things. And that's, that's just part of elite sport. We're all a team one way or the other. But the importance of integration is, is important but also understanding where we fit in that situation and and um, I, I think that can be hard when you spend all that time learning about something only to realize that in reality what you're doing is at best not that important um, it has a role to play um, at various times of the season or the year it has greater or lesser degrees of importance but it may not be as important as you think it is but that is nothing compared to what other people's opinions can be of how important or not you are. <laughs> and that is something I've definitely found over the years in, you know, whether it's rugby or football or um, other kinds of sports, is the coaches may not buy into sports science uh, and the value that you have to offer. The players or the athletes themselves may not. So, you know, considering you've been in this for a long time, and that's an undoubtedly a challenge you've had to deal with, um, is there anything you can share with us about, about those sort of barriers uh, to sports science, uh, whatever discipline we're into, that, that, that the other members of the team or even the athletes themselves may, may confront us with or prevent us, present us with? Yeah, I... You know, it's uh, it's everywhere in the world. So it it doesn't happen only in the UK. It happens everywhere. I I work in different countries and I work with coaches from different countries and educational backgrounds. Is everywhere. So uh, I think you get a, a number of types. So you get the coaches that are really pro science, whereby you know you you can throw the kitchen sink at it and they'll try it and they will embrace it and implement it. Uh, within within reasons, of course. Uh, then you have people that are at the polar end, uh, the opposite end. They would be totally against it, just in principle, and it's because they have uh, they've had bad experiences in the past, uh, and it tends to be uh, when sports scientists were approaching them and their athletes just to write a paper, so they were not generally interested in uh, in working a process to get better but was a quick buck so you come to my lab we'll do something with you we'll give you some information that you can't understand and, and we'll write a couple of papers about it so coaches have been burned by that approach or um, they have been burned by a lot of activities that were done that actually didn't produce anything that was of any meaning or application whatsoever 
And then you get the bit in the middle where you have somebody that could sway either way, uh, depending on how good you are in making the case for it, but also how sensible you are in the introduction of any science in a progressive manner. So my approach has always been uh, not introducing anything initially, but trying to understand what the coach and the athletes do and what the coach and the athletes want and what language they speak because in every sport uh, there is a jargon and you need to understand what they mean first so aerobic might not mean aerobic <laughs> yeah. in some sports uh, and so does an aerobic so you know I, I remember I'll translate, I'll translate for the listeners aerobic Aerobic, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it might mean uh, it might mean different things in different sports, despite the fact that in science it's pretty clear what it means. Yeah. Um, so my my work initially is always trying to understand the coach and literally trying to get things out of their head into a structure. Uh, so we always try to build some form of performance models, deterministic models of performance with the coach. And then uh, I asked the coach, so how do you coach these things? Uh, so if you tell me, for example, if you are a, an endurance coach and you think that uh, aerobic capacity is important and sprinting is important and uh, general endurance is important and running mechanics is important, is how do you coach it? And then after you tell me how you coach it, how do you assess it? And once I know how do you assess it, I want to know how much do you think it changes? Uh, so, you know, I, I break it down from, a, from a, a coaching background and then I look for areas where we can do the first interventions and we can really gain something meaningful. Uh, because again, if, if you try to do too many things, you don't have time. Um, so, so far, I, I never had issues with coaches of anywhere uh, and, and probably with, with many coaches, we didn't do much science. And that's probably why that you know I always kept a, a good relationship, but we didn't do much science because there was no need to. Yeah. Uh, the, I think the additional problem to this is the fact that uh, there is a risk with all these specialists around coaches to work in silo. Uh, when I started this career, I was on my own, so many times I was working with a national team, and I was jack of all trades. You know, I. I was doing strength and conditioning programs, I was doing physiology, I was helping with the, the uh, physician with the nutrition elements and supplementation, I was doing video analysis uh, and it's because sports couldn't afford to have 20 people. And, and this is something I've been saying in the British system, I said there will be a point in which funding is going to go down mm. and sports will not be able to afford an SNC coach, a nutritionist. Uh, a physiologist, uh, a psychologist, and all that kind of stuff. So what what should happen, uh, and it's still my view today, is sports should have a performance scientist that works with them uh, every day. So is the contact person, is the person that does most of the basic things well every day, and then should tap in the expertise, the real expertise, uh, the high-level expertise, when and if it's needed. So it's financially much more viable and doesn't put pressure on the individuals delivering the ologies to make sure that they over-deliver yeah. to justify their existence. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, examples of those are you work every day, and as a performance scientist, your daily job consists of doing some monitoring, some very basic data collection, making sure they are drinking the right stuff and they are well hydrated, uh, making sure they sleep well, making sure the training is done appropriately, making sure the recovery strategies and the travel strategies are in place. And to do this, you don't need a rocket science PhD. But you might have a problem with one or two athletes, let's say in nutrition, where they have to lose weight rapidly. And that's when you call in the expertise. Yeah. Or you have uh, an athlete that has a sleeping problem, like a serious one, so you bring in expertise there. Or you have uh, a coach that can communicate with the athletes, so you, you make sure you get psychology involved. So, or you have an, an equipment issue, and then you go and get the best person. So I think this is a much better way to work in a, in a performance environment without creating the need of over-sciencing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, no, I agree with you. And um, I actually, uh, I mean, my, my own work is I, I sort of work in a blend of, um, as a physiologist and as a nutritionist, and I used to be a strength and conditioning coach. But uh, last year, actually, I, I went and did, uh, or redid, so to speak, a postgraduate program in um, strength and conditioning at Middlesex University where I actually used the book that you edited, the uh, strength and conditioning um, biological principles and practical applications. God, I still remember the title. Anyway, it's an excellent book. Um, and the reason that I've talked about this on previous podcasts, the reason why I found that education so useful, even though I'm a nutritionist primarily, is because it helps me understand the needs of my clients better. But also, it enables me to speak the language I need to speak with the S&C coaches and the sports scientists. And we, we, you know, that is so important. And one area I feel that a lot of nutritionists fall apart on, because that's my main area and that's who I educate mostly, is they don't always realize that need for that knowledge. And it, and it, and it is about the language that they speak. It's about their ability to understand their clients' needs. I mean, there's so much to that. Um, and I think that the strength that that gives you to integrate with other members of, of that professional team, or if you are an S&C coach and you've got some nutrition training and you've got some physiology training, like you say, the reality is in most, most teams, and this will shatter the illusions of undergrads who are listening to this or, or recent postgrads, you know, who, who constantly will say on their applications to the programs I run, for example, I want, I'm doing this program because I want to get a job for a Premier League football team. There's virtually no jobs out there, folks. Um, and those that are, it's usually a part-time gig. Um, and often they actually want someone who can do more than one job at the same time. Like you said, um, you may even have to, to go and uh, reload the dishwasher. <laughs> Um, so bringing us back to this, this idea of science in sport, you know, we, we discussed some of the weaknesses that various educational systems have had. And of course, the individuals that have, have done that, you recognize where your strengths are and you can, you can enhance your weaknesses by attending more training or more mentorships or CPD or work experience. I guess, I guess work experience, Marco. That, that's an interesting one. Um, clearly, you're going to need to see people with experience. I mean, what, you know, that's the classic problem that people have. They go get a degree, 
They can't get an experience, so they can't get a job. How, how would you like to see people approach that issue? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we all had this. It, it was no different when I started many, many years ago in the, in, in the Dark Ages. Um, it's, uh, the way I started was going to asking people to go and uh, shadow what they were doing, just look at it. Uh, and I used to drive uh, many kilometers to, to see people. Uh, there were many people at the time. In Italy, when I when I started, there were only two or three people that were really worthwhile uh, looking at. And, and you know, I started volunteering. Um, the year I graduated, I was a, a volunteer in a research lab, which was run by the head coach of the Italian national team for track and field, and was the laboratory of strength analysis was called. Uh, and you know nobody nobody was there to volunteer so I did and and I went there every day and I met so many people learned so many things there so it was was a stepping stone for me uh, so volunteering is, is is a good way to start and I know these days is is difficult but you don't go and volunteer with the the England rugby team or, or Team GB you go and volunteer with a lower tier team you start getting your head around it, starting to understand how the environment works. Um, then the other thing that is very important is to um, learn things that are relevant. Um, so in, uh, I think I started using Excel in 1993 um, and, and that made a difference to me because there were people didn't even have computers at the time. Yeah, doing my yeah. job. So, you know, in this day and age, if you don't have advanced abilities in using data managing tools, and it can be Excel, it can be anything, you cannot be employed. It's as simple as that. So, if universities are not teaching you, you can self-teach yourself. This is how I learn. This is how I still learn. I don't go to courses. I just spend hours on it. And then I look at YouTube and all the kind of stuff and and I learn about it. So, Again, it's something that doesn't cost money, but costs time and effort. Mm -hmm. um, and the other advice I would give to people is to, especially young graduates, do a coaching degree and coach somebody. Because you, you cannot become, you cannot graduate and then pretend that you're going to write a training program for WASPs rugby if you've never even coached yourself. So, you know, starting writing programs for your friends while you're a student or for groups of athletes, assessing progression will teach you how to do this. And, and again, it doesn't cost money, it costs time and time and effort. So, you know, a lot of the young, uh, the young students complain about things and, and it's always someone else's fault. Uh, there's a lot of things that are in your control and learning is in your control. You can control how much you learn by the amount of time you spend trying to learn it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm uh, actually at the tail end of a professional doctorate myself, and um, part of my uh, my thesis is about uh, there's a there's sort of a, a a critical reflection of my own practice, which has been twenty something years. Hell of a lot of mistakes were made. Did a lot of really stupid things early on in my career. I mean, by stupid, I mean really stupid. But some of the most valuable data. And, and lessons that I have gotten out of those experiences has come from that reflective practice. And I, I can honestly say that there are things, that there are ways in which 
well, the one reason why my practice has done so well is because I've learned so much about how to interact with people one way or the other. And I would agree with you, um, whilst I don't come from a specifically a coaching background, I, I do come from a, um, a l many years of a doing background. And just do it. Just do it. And uh, obviously, you don't want to practice unsafe stuff. You want to you want to research, you know, what you're doing and, and, and get the knowledge side of it right. Um, but at the end of the day, you need to actually be doing this stuff. And, and um, you learn so much from that, which is hugely valuable. Um, we've, we've done podcasts on communication with Professor Andy Lane, for example. We've done podcasts on, um, with uh, Dr. Mehran Chudis on the uh, placebo effect. Uh, I've talked about the importance of presentation of not just oneself but how you present your information and the environment in which you do these things all has an impact on things like buy-in by your your client you know and in the same way if you rocked up to you know to a, an appointment with a pint of beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other <laughs> rubbing your, 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 your slightly large belly you know you're not going to get much buy-in from that client even though you might have all of the right credentials behind you. Um, and these certainly are the things they don't necessarily tell you. I mean, you, you would like to think they're obvious, but they're not so obvious. Um, so bring us uh, sort of coming to the tail end of this podcast here. Um, as I just mentioned, you've edited um, the Strength and Conditioning textbook that, um, that I know many UK students uh, in particular have been using. That... Um, that side of things I, I'm interested in is where to find the science that is useful. Um, what, you know, where do we get the knowledge that we need? Assuming we've already done our degrees now, we can't just start from zero because most people that are listening, Marco, will have already gotten their, their degrees. How can we optimize where we are to have that that sort of optimal potential for our career in this setting? Um, well, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, the obvious first answer is always to go and read the primary sources, you know, the, the original scientific papers. However, if you're not affiliated to an academic institution, uh, it becomes challenging and expensive because, you know, there are very few ways of, uh, you know, getting access to uh, library papers. There are few solutions, you know, for example, in the UK, if you become a member of the Royal Society of Medicine, uh, an associate me membership, you can have access to quite a lot of scientific journals and the library. Uh, if you become associated with some coaching uh, organizations, you might have access to, to a number of papers. So that's to access the, the main papers. However, I have to say that authors in general, uh, scientists in general, are very happy to send their PDFs if you email them. So if you cannot access a particular paper because there is no subscription for you, you can always email the main author and they will be more than happy to share to share a PDF. So, you know, again, it's an excuse that many people say is, oh, I can't access the library so I can't read. No, believe me, if you email somebody, they will send you the PDF. I always do and I know lots of my other colleagues uh, so that's the first, uh, the first one. Uh, the other one is, is of course, you know, trying to look for uh, books that are summarizing 
topics. So books that are produced like like uh, like the one that we wrote, uh, we edited with uh, um, Rob Newton and, and Ken Osaka. You know, we were trying to get the best people in the world to to write chapters uh, to summarize the areas. Um, there is lots of examples like our book uh, now um, that can be used. Um, Reading in general is always good, you know. Sometimes reading bad stuff is good, <laughs> of which the internet is full of. So there's plenty of blogs and DVDs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I have to say conferences, it depends on the conference. You know, there are some good conferences where you can learn something or, or get some ideas. Uh, but conferences, I think, are mainly good for networking and not much for learning. Very rarely I learn something incredibly new heart shattering in a, in a conference. I might get an hint and I pursue that, but, but really there. And, and also trying things. Again, what we learn from books or papers, it, it's just an idea or a result or an experiment somewhere. Then having the curiosity of trying it on our groups of athletes and having the ability to assess its effectiveness is the best way to learn. You try something that everyone is writing about, and then you find out that it doesn't work at all in your group. So you can easily abandon it instead of doing it, thinking that it's going to it's working just because somebody wrote the paper about it. Uh, this is where I always learn more the most has been in trying things. Yeah, and I was fortunate enough always to have the equipment to, or build it, be able to build the equipment to to test things. Uh, but in this day and age, uh, you don't need to build things. Um, you know, many years ago, you had to. <laughs> you must. Uh, you must have a very interesting garage, Marco. I bet there's all kinds of junk in there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> actually, that. I mean, that is. That. That is almost entirely why I came up with this podcast. Was, you know, I, I felt that it was very difficult to access the right information. Initially, I wasn't even sure who I should be talking to. Uh, I had sort of had a, a sort of a cold, sobering awakening when I realized that I was on the wrong path, you know, on various levels and felt, right, okay, I need to go back to the beginning. But there is so much out there and so much distractions. And uh, yes, you can go and get all your degrees, but, it, you know, you then get into the real world and you find actually you... You've barely even started. In fact, you've, you've, you've almost gone backwards in some sense because you're at risk of over-sciencing, like, like you say. Um, and, um, you know, talking to guys like you who've been doing this for many years, it's great because you can help share your many years of experience and learn from mistakes. And, you know, these are the things that our listeners want to hear and I really appreciate your time um, on this. Um, so as I, as I said, uh, you've edited um, <clears throat> that textbook, uh, Strength and Conditioning by Wiley, um, which I recommend. I think it's 2011. Do you have um, an update uh, for that book planned or it, not it's, yet? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's funny you say that because just yesterday we were <laughs> mailing back and forth because we think that uh, we, should, we should update it and, and also expand uh, there are a few other areas that we, we want to cover that couldn't be covered in the first edition. Uh, we discovered last week that there is now going to be a, an edition in Macedonian. Wow. <laughs> which is uh, very, very odd, bizarre, but it's, uh, it's excellent for uh, people that want to read it in that part of the world. It's, uh, well, Marco, it's Marco the, next, the next Olympics then, we should expect at least a medal from Macedonia then. 
um, all due and to their enhanced knowledge in strengthening. No, I, I think they, they they can reach that without without that already. You know, they they got few interesting uh, group of athletes there. Yeah, we're thinking about it. We're thinking Very about good. the second edition. Um, we good. have few ideas. We we might want to try to save the planet, uh, reducing the the paper element of it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we will see. Realistically, it's going to take a couple of years by the time we yeah. finalize everything, and then chapters get written up and it gets published. So, yeah. I think for a couple of years, uh, there's not going to be uh, an edition. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, that's why I do this podcast because the, the the problem with books is by the time they're published, they're already basically out of date. Uh, you know, um, <clears throat> and and also why I also run the ISSN diploma program, which is very much about getting people on board to uh, to teach us about the stuff they're currently researching so we don't have to wait years uh, for it to actually end up in books. Um, so uh, for those that want to um, to learn more about you, Marco, and what you're up to, um, I know you've got a blog and, and Twitter and so on. Do you want to tell the listeners uh, just quickly what they are? Yeah, a couple of things first. First, the organization I work for. So yeah. uh, we have a website, uh, Aspire Academy. Just have a new website, uh, www.aspire.qa, which says everything about what we do here in uh, Qatar. We have two big events coming up. So we have a coaching conference for athletics in October, um, which has a very uh, reduced fee. Uh, for attendance, so if you're into athletics uh, and you're interested, uh, you can come to Doha for three days. And there are some excellent coaches coming to speak about coaching athletes. And then in uh, February 2016, we just announced yesterday we have a, a conference on training monitoring in sport. Great names from all over the world: Bill Sands from the US, um, Aaron Kutz from Australia. Uh, Dave Martin, now from the US uh, NBA, I'll be there. Martin Boucher from France, uh, Carl Foster from the US, Steven Saylor from Norway. Uh, brilliant people. The conference is free. It's, there is no fee for the registration. If you want to come a few days in, uh, in Doha uh, and visit Aspire and see a great conference, it's February, so just follow our website. And then as for me, I have a Twitter account, um, so you can see my rantings on either on Twitter or on the blog. Uh, all you need to do is just Google my name, Marco Cardinale, blog or Twitter, and I'm sure you'll find it. Yeah, very good. Well, listen, it's been great to have you um, share your knowledge and vast experience with us. Um, I'm sure this will be a very popular episode. Um, so that brings us to the end of this uh, Guru Performance We Do Science podcast, episode 59. God, I'm getting close to 60 here. Um, if you want to learn more about our sponsors of this, this podcast, which is Healthspan Elite um, and their range of informed sport accredited uh, vitamins and mineral supplements, you can visit their website at healthspanelite.co.uk. Um, if you want to learn more um, about my uh, educational offerings, uh, which is at guruperformance.com, of course, I'm the program leader for the MSc in Sports Nutrition at Middlesex University, as well as the International ISSN Diploma Postgraduate Program. Uh, you can learn about that at issndiploma.com. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock, and I look forward to bringing you another episode um, of We Do Science very soon. Thank you very much for listening.